1: This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we learn more about the fight against extremist radicalization here in Colorado.
2: What are their tactics? What are they doing? What are their ideologies?
3: Plus, the Colorado Community College system is using new grant money to reassess and revamp their police training programs. We'll hear what they've found so far and what they're looking to change.
1: Those stories and more just ahead. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. President Joe
3: Biden was sworn in as the 46th president on Wednesday in an inauguration that looked quite different from past ceremonies because of the pandemic and because of heightened security in the wake of a violent attack at the U.S. Capitol earlier this month. Democracy
4: has prevailed. <laughs> so now... On this hallowed ground where just a few days ago violence sought to shake the Capitol's very foundation, we come together as one nation, under God, indivisible, to carry out the peaceful transfer of power as we have for more than two centuries.
1: Here in Colorado, there was an elevated police presence around the state capitol building on Wednesday. Several hundred protesters came out after the inauguration, some chanting anti-law enforcement messages and burning flags. But the scene was far from the chaos that many had feared in the wake of the U.S. Capitol insurrection.
3: Well before that attack on January 6 far-right extremists were organizing online. Many of these extremist groups have been using social media platforms and digital forums, ranging from well-known to obscure, to recruit new members and spread misinformation.
1: The Mountain State region of the Anti-Defamation League works to identify hate groups, anti-Semitism, extremism, and terrorism in person and online. Between 2019 and 2020, the organization reported 179 incidents of targeted violence here in in the state. KUNC's Amanda Andrews spoke with Associate Regional Director Jeremy Shaver about their efforts to fight extremist radicalization locally.
2: Well, in Colorado, we've seen a kind of historic presence of extremist movements. We've seen different uh, types of anti-government and militia movements that have been um, have had some level of activity in the state over, you know, over the decades. We you also know that uh, Colorado is a State with uh, changing demographics, right? And so, just one of the flashpoint issues that has been, you know, really evident in Colorado over the last few years is um, on immigration. And so, we've seen, you know, extremist groups really tackle this issue. And so, I think there's a couple things at play. You know, some of the his, kind of the historic presence of extremist individuals and groups in the state, as well as some of these social issues and policy issues that have been intractable over the last number of years. And and so. Those are a couple of factors at at play. And what is your group using to address and defuse far-right or white supremacist radicalization? Well, I think it happens on several levels, right? And so the first level is, is data and information gathering, so making sure that we understand what is the threat, what are the concerns. And so the Anti-Defamation League, as as well as other uh, civil society groups certainly track and monitor extremist movements um, and look at, you know, what are their tactics, what are they doing, what are their ideologies. And we also work with uh, community partners, you know, particularly communities that are more vulnerable to extremist activity when we particularly look at um, communities who are targeted with hate crimes, hate violence, and so some of it's also public education and developing networks of support among those groups who are frequently targeted. I think you know, there's also making sure that our elected officials understand the threat, that our law enforcement authorities understand the threat, and that we have the right policies in place to respond to the threat. And then, of course, certainly, we're we're working extensively with uh, social media companies to make sure that those companies are establishing and enforcing their platform standards uh, and and doing doing their utmost best to. Um, Address and remove extremism from their platforms and and so there it, it's a it's a really a multi pronged approach right, right, and you know now that tensions are kind of even higher nationally, have you had to make changes to your methods, or you know were you prepared for this kind of unrest Well, the sad thing is that what we're seeing right now is perhaps, you know, the most predictable terrorist attack and terrorist activity and extremist activity in modern U.S. history, right? We've been seeing how this has been building up. We've been seeing how extremists, you know, the rhetoric, how it's been amping up and, you know, the actions that have been taken. I mean, whereas, you know, five, six years ago we saw much of the activity online you know, then in 2016, 2017, we started to see some of these right, primarily right-wing extremists you know, actually then going to the streets. Let's you know, not forget the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. And then there was some pretty extreme backlash to that very public type of extremist um, violence. And then folks went you know, pretty deeply back online again. And so we're seeing this again. So it's kind of this cycle of you know, online radicalism. And then it you know, spills over into real world on the streets. Um, violence and activity, and they, you know, we go back and forth in these in these cycles. So certainly, you know, if we're doing anything right now, it's continuing to just really work more actively with social media firms to get them to take uh, really effective action. And certainly we're pleased to see that some of the platforms have, in fact, taken some action recently. And for people who might be noticing extremist ideology online or in their communities for the first time, what recommendations do you have on how they can address the situation to maybe diffuse it? I think there's a couple of things that individuals can do. One is to use the reporting functions on individual platforms. So on Facebook, on Twitter, on YouTube, um, you know those those companies as well as others have the ability to report concerning um, content and content that may violate the standards of the platform so it's important to report any time uh, individuals see something that that is you know either dancing along the line or crosses the line to a to a direct threat and you know, if there is something that is a direct threat, that an individual or a group or an organization is directly threatened on one of these platforms, it's important to let law enforcement know immediately and, you know, capture screenshots, preserve evidence so that law enforcement can can receive that and try to take appropriate action. And then I think there's, you know, some personal responsibility as well to use the internet safely and to try to be cautious about the context and forums in which, you know, people place themselves but i think it's re- report it to the platforms report it to law enforcement if it's if it looks like some type of direct threat and to really be cautious about you know one's own personal safety and security
1: that was kunc's amanda andrews speaking with jeremy shaver of the mountain state region of the anti defamation league
3: Last summer, calls for police reform in Colorado came to a head amid a long season of protests supporting the Black Lives Matter movement. Outrage and calls to defund the police pushed state lawmakers to pass a groundbreaking police accountability law.
1: Many of Colorado's law enforcement officers are first trained to do their jobs at community colleges around the state, which makes it significant that the Colorado community college system recently received a $1 million grant to reshape their law enforcement cadet training programs with greater emphasis on racial justice.
3: Landon Perius is Vice Chancellor for Academic and Student Affairs with the Colorado Community College System. He's here today to tell us about those plans. Landon, welcome to Colorado Edition. Thank you. First, start by telling us about this grant and what the money will mean for law enforcement training and education in the community college system.
0: The focus of the grant is really on three different components over the next three years. And What we're really interested in doing early on in the first year is taking a deep look at our curriculum, our content of our courses, and the requirements uh, to graduate from our law enforcement academies, and to infuse concepts of implicit bias, de-escalation, intercultural training, et cetera, into our, our curriculum so that our cadets, And eventually, our future officers will have that training and that knowledge before they get into the field. The second year is looking at how those courses are taught. So what we want to do is take those concepts of implicit bias, de-escalation, and intercultural training, And develop a way that our cadets will actually get to experience those um, concepts hands-on and practice skills so that when they get into the environment, they'll have a better ability to practice what they learned rather than just think about what they learned. And then the third year is, is a focus more on the continuing education and professional development for existing uh, law enforcement officers. So the concepts that I talked about, we would turn into continuing education experiences that uh, we, we could make available to law enforcement agencies around the state.
3: I'm curious about what sparked this awareness that the way new law enforcement officers were being trained Is inadequate. Why undertake this effort now?
0: Yeah, well, the events of this past summer kind of started with the killing of George Floyd back in Minneapolis. And our community college system talked a lot about well, what can we do more than just issuing statements of support? You know, we have eight law enforcement academies in our system, and we play a role in training future law enforcement officers. So From that kind of revelation, we said, well, what do our officers learn in the academy? Minimally, to become an officer in the state of Colorado, you have to have 556 hours of of training. Only eight of those hours dealt with ethics and working with a diverse community. And so we realized that if we took the time to really look at our curriculum and add content and add requirements, that we could do a better job of preparing our future officers to protect and serve a diverse community.
3: Well, of course, we're talking about a huge undertaking, right? Like the Colorado community college system, tons of schools, tons of instructors, tons of students. Are there any other law enforcement training programs that are getting this right that you guys are looking to to sort of shape how you guys are going to model it?
0: Yeah, you're right that this is a huge undertaking. And so we recognize it's gonna take time. We also recognize it's not going to be easy, uh, which is why we have a robust set of partners. From the get-go, we've been working with the Attorney General's Office. Um, In addition to our eight academies, we also have three academies at other higher education institutions who are partners with us. But we also feel it's really important to get the community voice. And so we have partners from the NAACP, two chapters, the Urban League, the Denver Ministerial Alliance, and other community organizations who are actively at the table with us talking about what they would like to see as outcomes and what an officer should be prepared to do when they're working in our communities.
3: Well, Landon, as I'm sure you're well aware, there's been a lot of talk about the idea of redistributing police funding, either into new programs within a given department or to other departments altogether. How does that idea intersect with this project that you're working on? I'm kind of imagining that a better-trained officer is better for any budget than an under-trained officer.
0: Yeah, we would agree with that. You know, we, we do recognize that the social workers in the state of Colorado have to have thousands of hours of training and have to have graduate degrees. And yet we're asking our police officers to essentially do some level of social work in the work that they're doing. We recognize that there is a need to better train our officers to be prepared. But we won't ever be able to train them to the level of what a social worker might have or a mental health caseworker might have. There, there is an argument for better funding some of these other aspects so that we're not asking our police officers to do work that they're not trained or equipped to handle.
3: Why is the community college system the right place to start this conversation about reshaping what these training programs look like?
0: We think we're the right place because a good portion of the law enforcement officers in the state come through our academies. We're in 40 locations in the state and our colleges are embedded in the communities that we serve and similar to law enforcement officers who are embedded in the communities that they serve when they become officers. So because of our physical locations, because of our community connections, we think we're a very logical place to really be at the center of this work.
3: Landon Perius is Vice Chancellor for Academic and Student Affairs with the Colorado Community College System. Landon, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much.
1: You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. With vaccine distribution now taking place across the country, the end of the pandemic is on the horizon. But the novel coronavirus isn't the first virus to cause a pandemic, so it stands to reason it won't be the last.
3: Health experts have been taking a close look at wildlife to find the next deadly virus and stop it before it becomes a human problem. Before it becomes a human problem, too. Jim Robbins has been reporting on these efforts for Kaiser Health News, and he's here with us now to tell us more about it. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So experts strongly suspect the coronavirus the world is currently struggling with came from bats. How common is it for a virus to spread from an animal to humans? 75%
4: 75% of uh, emerging infectious diseases come from a wildlife or domestic animals. So yes, uh, animals are the source of many of our most persistent inf- infectious diseases.
3: And how does COVID-19 compare to some of those other wildlife-borne diseases? It is more
4: transmissible than, say, Ebola or uh, SARS. Uh, it is very easy to catch as, related, as compared to those other diseases. But it isn't as fatal. It doesn't make people as sick as uh, other diseases do. In some ways, its, it's lack of mortality rate is working in, in our favor. But the transmissibility of it is working against us because it's fairly easy to catch. A lot of diseases have kind of um, made their way out of uh, bats or other wildlife and into humans and then simply died out because they are not able to be transmitted as readily But uh, that is not the case with coronavirus that we're dealing with.
3: What can you tell us about how these viruses make the jump from animals to humans?
4: A lot of it has to do with not understanding or not respecting how ecosystems work. A lot of bat viruses, for example, live in the bats and don't really cause an illness uh, amongst the bats. Or maybe they'll just get a slight cold or something the way we do when we catch a virus. Or we did up until this one broke out. But when humans break into a, an intact ecosystem, as they did in Australia and uh, China and other places where diseases have come out, uh, humans are very susceptible to these viruses and they have a serious health impact. Um, and so once they come out of their host animal and into humans, they can cause a lot of problems as they have with the coronavirus. At least from what we know, that's what's happened. So once they get into a naive Uh, immune system like ours, it can wreak havoc if it's the right virus. And there are lots of viruses out there that can cause these kind of problems, but we simply don't know a lot about them.
3: Right. And I suppose that's where these wildlife and health experts come in. What are they currently working on? Like, how do you identify a next big virus before it actually comes?
4: Well, they're, they're monitoring places where there are a lot of bats and where there is a lot of disruption of habitat. So they're going in and they're looking in these places where there's lots of forest being cut down or land being cleared. And they're looking to see in these bats to see if there are coronaviruses that haven't been identified yet that could possibly cause these kind of um, outbreaks of of disease. So that's one way that there's kind of a sentinel effort in these countries where humans are are breaking uh, into new territory and where there are coronaviruses that are or other viruses that are possibly able to, to jump out of, of their host animal and into humans. The problem is, is there's a huge range of places out there in the world, not just the Amazon, but all over. And so there's huge effort to try and find out more about where this, these might possibly break out of nature and into human civilizations and, and to try and catch it before it happens. And this concept is called One Health which means that the health and and well-being of of the natural world is connected to human health. And it's bringing experts together in all of these areas to study this transmission line um, from nature into humans.
3: Well, as you've been looking at this story and and talking to all these folks, have you gotten a sense about how likely it is that another highly infectious disease will make its way over to humans in the near future. I know just in the last 10, 15 years, we've seen MERS and SARS. Those are different types of coronaviruses.
4: There's so much development in undeveloped areas going on around the world. And uh, there's much more heavy equipment, there's much more available technology to allow people to go into these uncharted areas where we don't know what what, hap- what lives in the animals there. Now there are studies, there's something called the um, Global Virome Project that seeks to catalog all of the, or not all, but most of the viruses in wildlife to try and figure out when and where another disease might emerge. But yeah, there's a lot of concern that this could happen be- simply because there's so many more people out in the woods, if you will, who are, are you know, eating bush meat, killing wild animals, or invading their habitat. And, you know, a bat flies over, uh, drops a little urine in in a pig farm, and the pigs get sick, and then humans get sick from the pigs. So it's very kind of an easy concept to understand that this transmission from wild animals to humans is much more of a problem now than it ever has been.
3: Well, that's Jim Robbins of Kaiser Health News. You can find a link to his reporting on this article heading off the next pandemic on our website, KUNC.org. Thanks for joining us today, Jim. You're welcome. As the population of Colorado's front range continues to grow, cities and towns are scrambling to secure enough water to sustain that growth but the process for building or expanding reservoirs takes years. In the city of Greeley, water officials have proposed scrapping a years-long effort to expand the Milton Seaman Reservoir. They plan instead to acquire water storage rights on a property called Terry Ranch in northwest Weld County. Dan Micah has been following this story for BizWest, and he is with us now. Thanks for joining us, Dan. Hey, Henry. Briefly outline for us what the Terry Ranch project is and what it would do.
5: A lot of people may recognize Terrier Ranch as this kind of a roadside attraction right up on the uh, Wyoming-Colorado border. But what Greeley specifically is interested in is the aquifer underneath. It is a natural storage tank, essentially, where the city believes that it could store uh, 1.2 million acre feet of water. And that would be enough to uh, meet the demand if demand stays at the current level for the population of Greeley for the next Forty-eight years, so we're talking a very large underground storage tank. And the city of Greeley is looking at this because the their efforts for the last fifteen years to expand the Milton Seaman Reservoir in the mountains has run into a lot of challenges in terms of just getting permits and getting uh, envir- environmental groups to to sign off on expanding that. So they're kind of just shifting uh, gears, and they want to just. By the storage unit underground. Uh, and we're talking a very long-term and a very expensive project. By the time that they believe that it would all be said and done by the year 2100, they estimated the cost of this would be uh, $506 million.
3: Wow, that is just crazy to hear you even say the year 2100. But you mentioned that it's a long, expensive project. So too is this reservoir project up in the mountains. I think to this point, the city of Greeley has spent $19 million up there. Where does that project go from here?
5: They're going to keep that in their back pocket. They still have the water rights coming in from that reservoir, and they still have their shares of uh, Big Thompson water, I believe. So that water is still going to be coming in. And the, the strategy behind Terry Ranch is to essentially build wells to inject water underground and use that as a, a big underground storage tank. Uh, this is a, a somewhat common practice uh, down in Colorado Springs. They do this fairly often and they do it across the country as well. Uh, what's a little bit different here is just the way that the city really intends to pay for it. Instead of t- taking out a bond, which would you know require a vote and probably a very difficult vote to try and pitch a $500 million bond to to anyone in Colorado, to be quite quite honest, the strategy here is that they are going to uh, acquire the rights from the the landowner, the surface ground owner of Terry Ranch, and just have the the ability to pump water underneath to store it. And instead, they will issue credits, uh, water credits, to the owner of that property, and that owner of the property can sell that credit. To investors uh, or and land developers who are trying to build homes in Greeley, and then those developers can give the credits right back to the city of Greeley in lieu of raw water rights. So kind of an interesting deal here, but that all kind of depends on whether Greeley continues to see the population growth that we've seen and is expected to grow you know, up to a potentially two hundred thousand person city in the next couple of decades. Dan, what do you expect to happen next in this? Right now, it's kind of in the hands of the Greeley City Council. They're going to continue to to discuss it. But the city does have an option to buy that, I believe, expires within the next couple of months. Uh, and right now, the city is just in their final due diligence process of making sure that everything is structurally sound with the aquifer, making sure there aren't any environmental concerns that may po- be popping up. And... Yeah, so it'll just be the next couple of weeks to months, um, you know, th- there, there may be a commitment we'll see from the city of Greeley to make this the next big play they do to secure the water to allow them to continue to support the population that they think will be moving into Greeley as people continue to want to be around Denver but aren't willing to pay Denver prices or just want more space and want to, to be able to afford, you know, large tracts of land.
3: Dan Micah is a reporter for BizWest. You can find a link to Dan's reporting on our website, KUNC.org. Dan, thanks for joining us.
1: Anytime. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we'll check in on the state of unemployment benefits and federal relief here in Colorado. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm
3: Henry Zimmerman. Our show is produced with help from Ray Solomon and Adam Reyes. Brian Larson is our executive producer.
1: Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.